0: Hello and welcome to Calm Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host Benjamin Boyce, and today's calm versant is Mary Harrington, who is a British-based author of articles, not yet books, but she's planning on ten. It's a wonderful conversation. I don't even know how to encapsulate it. We are of a very similar mind about the ways in which postmodernism, as a form of interaction with different a means of meaning making is actually a necessary step to being somebody who can craft meaning uh, authentically and creatively in the current environment now a lot of people hate postmodernism but we distinguish Basically, there's the creative postmodernism, and then the purely nihilistic postmodernism. We kind of get into that, but we also get into like 10 other topics. This is the beginning of 10 other episodes of Conversation with Mary Harrington. She's a fabulous author. I love her brain, and I love her ideas, and those are linked down in the description. I don't want to butcher the prelude with any more of my babbling, so I'm going to get out of the way and introduce you to Mary Harrington. Are you a full-time writer? Is that you um,
1: I don't yeah. know. I suppose I kind of am now. Um, although I, I wasn't really—I mean, it's something. It's what I always wanted to do. But I kind of—I never really expected to find myself actually doing it because I did pretty much anything but that for about twenty years. Um, I've been—I've been like a janitor and a stay-at-home mom, and I hated marketing, but did that for about ten years and all, oh, wow. all kinds of stuff. Okay. Yeah, it's—I it's, don't recommend it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I ended up just thinking by the, by the time I, I sort of fell off the end of the work pipeline having a baby because I was working a contract at the time. And it just didn't really feel ethical to sign up for another one without telling them I was pregnant.
2: Mm. That
1: just felt rude. Um, so then I just kind of didn't go back to work for a bit. And that was and I thought, well, that's it. I'm probably just unemployable now. Oh, and yeah. the, re- the only reason the reason I started writing was because I got really bored. And I have this I have this friend who's kind of she's sort of third generation art world. And she and I both had kids at the same time, and we'd, we we took to WhatsApping each other our kids' like toddler scribbles with this very serious commentary in the style of a contemporary art gallery, um, wow. which which it really works if you have if you if you look at it you just you just look at these scribbles slightly differently you're like mm, yeah you know it's sort of Jackson Pollock
2: um, <laughs> yeah yeah
1: in, um and, and so I started blogging it and it just went a bit viral uh, I can't remember when it was two or three years ago. One summer, um, and a, a friend happened to see it, who actually is an art gallery, who who does run an art gallery, and was like, "Oh, Mary, you should write. You should you should you should do more writing because I, your writing is really funny." And so I thought, okay, um, it was completely by coincidence. I ran into her at a friend's party, and she was like, "Oh, you should you should do some writing." And I thought, well, it's what I always wanted to do. And so I just pitched a couple of things, and literally I I pitched two articles to sort of free. Like political websites, and after that, Unheard wrote to me to say, "Mary, would you like to pitch to us?" And I did. Oh, okay. Um, And I think I've written an article for them pretty much every week since, and it really just
0: wasn't planned at all. So, when did you start uh, working with Unheard?
1: Uh, When did you start this
0: writing thing? Then, like, what year?
1: That was November. I think the the first thing I did for them was maybe September or September ish, two thousand nineteen. Okay, yeah. Um, so really, not very long ago. Um,
0: and it's mostly politics, you would say.
1: It's all—it's all sorts of weird. Yeah, it's all stuff. sorts of
0: things. I really like it. It's a really g- great grab bag of just your
1: all sorts your of Polak weird stuff. Thoughts. The, yeah. Just, well, I, I, I do a lot of long distance running, and just things—things things kind of filter their way to the surface when I'm out running yeah and um, so I mean you, I never really know what's going to surface next um I think the first one I did was um, I, I was attacking the idea of growth from the right which I just thought was a it was just a fun a fun thing to try and do
0: what do you mean attacking the uh, idea? like
1: the well I, I, th- I thought it would be fun to have a go at the Conservative Party from the right um, and blame Blame everything that was wrong with them on the fact that they're obsessed with growth, you know the way the left has all of these sort of sacred ideas these, these sort of these areas where you must not go and there are certain and there are ther- mm. ther- that, that's just the way it is you know what I mean yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you know people on the right who always want to say, well, you know we're not like that, we just kind of you know we have our um, you, you know we, we, we accept facts and evidence and you know we're not ideological about anything and I have yeah, bollocks yeah. Right. Uh, so- <laughs> right, and, and I, uh, so I just wanted to argue the case that economic growth has become, for the right, exactly the same sort of sacred cow okay. as certain, certain identity categories and sort of rules about what you can say around identity, how, for the left. Um, and that basically pretty much everything that conservatives used to believe have been sacrificed to the great God growth. And you can make okay. the case, you, you can completely make the case. Yep. I mean, family has been sacrificed to growth, um, pretty much national national belonging. Has been sacrificed to growth you know any sort of conservation of the environment has been sacrificed to growth you know the list goes on you can think mm-hmm. of pretty much pretty much everything that conservatives used to believe um, goes goes just goes completely down the can when it, it's like okay. oh yeah but that might hurt, hurt the economy and, and okay. how it goes and as a result you know a lot of the people who used to think of themselves as conservatives are, j- are pretty much as homeless as people who used to think of themselves as left-wingers but are a bit kind of grossed out by the whole identity religion thing yeah and, and I suppose politically, I kind of, you know, if there's a Venn diagram of people who are grossed out by identity on one side and people who are grossed out by growth on the other, and there's there's some sort of intersection there, that's, that's kind of me. Those are my
2: people.
0: Uh, wow. Yeah, there's this uh, kind of theory that, I, I guess it's not a theory, but this diagnosis of the current state of the world, at least the Western world, uh, which kind of makes the case that there's this managerial elite that runs everything, these bureaucrats that are not elected, you know, the deep state, which can be taken as a conspiracy and uh, one sense, but also just as reality. If you look at America's federal government, it's this huge behemoth that mm. just kind of feeds on the populace and you know kind of divvies up resources in this way or that way. But basically, it's just this huge class of people who mm. are all trained within uh, certain you know, universities. Uh, they're they're the, basically the ruling class. Now there's the super rich, and then everybody else. But in between is the people who actually control the world, and they are the actual their will is what's implemented in government, and I think that a lot of the identity politics stuff is a great way for them to uh, insulate themselves from you know the outsiders in a variety of ways, and then enforce conformity with you know this kind of basic way of thinking. And then also it could be uh, made uh, the case could be made that neoliberalism and neoconservatism, which are about growth about market economies, are basically it benefits those people more than it benefits anybody else. And the outsider populations are kind of, uh, you know, we, we play this game of electing officials and playing in the surface politics, but the people who are really controlling everything are untouchable.
1: I think there's a lot of truth in that, you know, whether or not, um, whether or not pointing it out is going to make any difference yeah. is another question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, Yeah, it's it's a difficult area to get into because it's sort of hard to talk about without sounding without without sort of getting into quite kind of tinfoil hat territory. And you know, and I gen- I genuinely don't think there's there's any sort of in- there's there's a massive conspiracy going on in any sort of meaningful sense. You know, you, to to a degree, what we have is kind of is it's a kind of emergent property of just the way the way things have fallen out.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, I don't I don't really. <laughs> I, I don't think there's some there's some kind of great you know there, there, there isn't a group of lizard people out there who are kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. You know they, that there is that there exists a class of people who are who've organised things by accident or by design. You know pretty much to suit their own class interests is difficult to dispute.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: mean, but perhaps you could say that there's you know that it's just in the nature of a ruling class to do that. You know, if I have a criticism you know if I have a problem with it it's not even to be honest with the idea of a ruling class as such you know because I think you know point point to any society which has ever existed with it beyond the rudimentary level of complexity which does not have a hierarchy and does not have a class system you know I think that's very difficult to avoid you know if I have a criticism with the the emerging um, managerial elite if you like it's that I, I don't th- I, I think the prognosis for their ideology as a kind of long-term sustainer of a functional society is very poor you know I, I, I think they have a that their, their worldview is incredibly antisocial and it's just going to send things up in smoke unless it's unless it hmm unless it get adjusts itself a bit
0: could you we uh, could you Kind of take some pot shots at what that ideology is, what that mindset is.
1: We uh, can kind of criticize
0: that. Um.
1: Well, I would, I, I mean, I've, I've characterized it elsewhere as an integralism of the self. I mean, I, I think I think we live under a sort of, a, you know, you, I don't know if you spend any time on weird Catholic Twitter. It's not really, it's kind of a niche hobby. Mm. Um, but but on, on weird Catholic Twitter, a big, um, a, a, a big, um a, a common subject of conversation is integralism as it, which they the the catholics think of as a, a, an integral political system which is um where, where you know political political systems are ordered to catholicism so that the whole thing works together i mean it's not something i could i could expand on in detail because i'm not a catholic and it's really not my thing well, but but the
0: how, how did you end up in weird Catholic Twitter then. Um,
1: internet rabbit holes are kind of my hobby. That's <laughs> okay, why I ended up doing what I do, and it's why I yeah. write about such an eclectic okay. set of things. I, I just, I, you know, for my sins, I love the internet and I love internet rabbit holes. And weird Catholic Twitter is is such a thing. Hello to my friends on Weird Catholic Twitter. If anybody's reading this, uh, I, I love. All Hail Mary,
0: full of grace.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah let, let, Let's not let's not um, offend anybody now.
0: Could you? Um, could you restate but, but, what you were saying about integralism so, uh, in, in, integralism
1: yeah but an in, integralism of the self so I borrowed I borrowed the term integralism from um are catholic twitter um to describe what I see as an integrated political and moral order which is now emerging um you know I, in my view we now live under a post liberal order but it's not the kind of hobbit you know the kind of idealized sort of gk chesterton version of post liberalism that the kind of tweed wearing tweed wearing guys um yeah like to talk about it's something it's something much more kind of high tech and frankly creepy where you know everybody's free to be me um but you're not allowed to actually say or do anything in case you impinge on anybody else's freedom to be me okay um and pretty much the entire political system is ordered towards protecting the sanctity of the self and otherwise trying to trying to withhold moral judgment about absolutely anything um, and just kind of optimize, optimize human physical safety, you know, sort of optimize kind of bare life and optimize this sort of radical, radical individualism, which is quite kind of optimized and quite narcissistic, you know, again, borrowing memes from the weird, right? You know, they're always on about, you know, living in the pod and eating bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of that.
0: Yeah. Um, you'll own nothing. You'll you be know, happy, but you exactly. you will be you. You'll be free. Yeah. You. But,
1: but you'll be free to be you. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, that's that's the that's that that's how I would characterize that's the sort of mood board, if you like, for an integralism okay. of the self. I mean it's at the risk at the risk of getting into quite radioactive territory. Pretty much the first move that your your new president made upon arriving in government was to sign into you know, this executive order, which effectively abolishes biological sex in law in favour of how people would like to define themselves. Mm-hmm. Um and, and for me, you know, some I, th- I thought that spoke volumes because what it, what it speaks to is the idea that um, there are no natural limits to who we are. We must be, we must be liberated to be ourselves even over, even over and above the constraints of our own bodies. And even over and above sometimes, you know, the class needs of other, of other groups of people who might protest. Um, and so, and, and, and it's, it's complete indifference to materiality Speaks to me. You know, I mean, it's a it's a straightforwardly it's a religious edict that says, mm-hmm. you know, we we just don't care about materiality. It's yes. less important than this other this other domain of um, of the sacred, which we're going to put, which we're going to, you know, give the full force of state authority. Yes. Um. And 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 this this is what I mean by it's an integral and political moral order. You know, I don't think I don't know that it's possible to have a a, a political system without some kind of moral framework behind it. But the moral framework behind the one which is now emerging is very strange because, it first of all, it disavows the fact that it's a moral framework. It pretends that it's no such thing; that it's just it's just about freedom. But in in fact, you, it has it has a certain sort of central sacred values. One of which is free to be me. Pretty much the only one, in fact, is free to be me. Um, you know, within within with, you know with with a lot of small print,
0: a lot of asterisks, yeah. and a lot of small. Print. Yeah, that, that's small print. One of the uh, bigger pieces of small print is that it, there is a hierarchy of identity that seems to be the more radical. The more outlier, uh, the more pretended, the more divorced from reality, that is the most sacred in a certain way. With regards to how do you decide which, if gender reality or gender identity is reality, how do you decide which uh, reality is more real than everybody else's? Which uh, person gets more rights than everybody else? And like with women in sports, it's the person who says they are a woman that's more important than the person who simply just is a woman by the accident of biology so how do, i don't know how that maintains order without devolving into complete chaos and power games that's how i've seen it play out over and over again
1: well the, the short answer is it doesn't um so what you i mean the the logical this is what i mean when i say it has a poor long-term prognosis um, as, a, as a moral order, you know, if you put the full force of the state behind letting people basically inhabit their own reality, it's difficult to see how that can be contained in any state of order, as you say, except without a, you know as a state which is as repressive as the, the, the individual freedom of every single person living under that state is complete so the more the more chaotically we can all just pursue our own little realities. Um, the more totally the state has to control everything, otherwise it's all just going to go completely to shit. And I don't see how that doesn't work. You know, you can't have everybody left to make more pretty more make their own decisions about bigger things like you know how do I organize my family or you know do is is it okay to punch strangers in the street? Um, you can't you can't leave you can't you can't ever make an assumption that people are just going to do the right thing on that thing because there is no right thing anymore. Okay. Do you see what do you see what I'm? Yes yeah you know if you if you just dynamite the whole concept that there is a right thing that can be done then <clears throat> you end up you end up having to write rules for absolutely everything so you end up with this sort of state of total this well, well I mean there are people now you know the the paranoid right wingers call it soft totalitarianism don't they or yeah. perhaps not so paranoid perhaps just slightly <laughs> psychotic i don't know but 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 the the people who are very anxious about this stuff, and certainly people amongst, you know, now now dwindling faith communities are deeply concerned that their their, their ability or, you know, freedom to to act, even to have a faith in the sense of any sort of a shared meaning which hasn't been subordinate, sort of dissolved by radical individualism, mm. you know, that that, that freedom is, is at, risk, at serious risk of just being abolished altogether because mm. there's something sort of intrinsically exclusionary or dangerous or just just too sort of poisonously shared to about their their ideologies to be left alone and I mean you know, I, you know I'm sort of talking I'm, I'm kind of I'm exaggerating for effect a bit here yeah but this is this is kind of the discourse
0: well the, this, the departure from a shared moral framework that can be logically ordered uh, A stable moral framework that we had under the aegis of Christianity and the liberal order uh, that drew a line between your own personal morality and then the enforcement of your morality on other people. Uh, Without a certain framework that's both flexible and stable, it seems that people who are into this very radical uh, UBU – morality, become more and more moralistic and more and more shrill in their enforcement of this new morality, departing from their an older, more stable morality. It's like there's this defensiveness or this fundamentalism that comes in that kind of uh, contradicts with what you were saying about there is no morality because there are increasingly more and more moralistic people. And with the decline of religion, there's more and more religiosity uh, coming into play.
1: Well I mean I have the, I, one of my one of my theses is that you know what people what people call rudely and crudely wokeness is not in fact postmodern at all. You know People say, "Oh, you know this is the toxic impact of postmodernism blah blah blah, and we just have to go back to reason and sensible debate and all sort of being polite to one another and and all of that stuff it 's my view that in fact um, what, what what we call wokeness isn 't postmodern at all um, it 's actually the last stand of high modernism. Uh, in the sense that um it's it's realized that meaning you know postmodernism radically destabilizes the whole structure of meaning um yeah. because of you know the the uh, the eternal deferral of meaning and you know all of that deconstructionist stuff um and therefore the only the only way to push back against this is just to destroy all shared meanings full stop and just just abolish shared meanings in the in in favor of personal identity yes. but the problem with that philosophically you know in, in because, you know, if we try and do that and then we also try and continue to exist in the world in, other pe- in relation to other people, you know, we, we find ourselves in this difficulty where if, if I try and totally self-create my own identity, I'm not going to know who I am still unless I receive validation from other people. But any sort of validation, but, but the, the dependence on, other person, on another person's recognition means I'm also vulnerable. You know, the, just the act of them looking at me threatens me. So these so, so anybody who sort of inhabits this way of looking at things is simultaneously desperate for the other person desperate for recognition and also absolutely terrified of recognition all the time. And I, I mean, it's I've been in that state. I was I was hit really hard by the postmodernism by the by the deconstruction train when I went to university. This was ages ago. I'm, I'm old. This was like early noughties when it happened to me and I was in a state of borderline psychosis for a number of years trying mm-hmm. to get my head around what had happened to me there. My recovering from post—not most bonded. postmodernism took most of my twenties, I reckon. It was brutal. Um, and tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> you you went there as well.
0: Oh man, I, I went there hardcore. <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: I had to be like, I had to be
0: of- uh, destroyed several times before uh, I, I kind of came to a more humble understanding of myself and the world.
1: It's really rough. It's really rough, and so and when, you know, when I see these these sort of zoomers or you know, twenty, twenty one, twenty five, I see I see these kids kind of screaming at the world and you know trying to organise everything according to their inner schema. You know, it's very easy to sort of sneer at them or laugh at them, and or or to think, well, you know, this is this is something. You know, can't they just pull themselves together? But actually, it's an incredibly distressing state of mind to be in. It's really horrible. You know, you're in this state of total existential nakedness and total existential rage all the time. Um, and, and, it's, and it's the ideology. you know, it's, the, it's what, you, what you've been taught at university which has done that to you. I think it's an, it's an absolutely brutal thing to do to young people, hmm. um, especially if you're not going to give them any sort of tools or, you know, any, any kind of helpful practices, you know, to recover from that. And what it what it took me um, to recover from it, and it, this was a long time after it all happened to me. I I kind of I tried various copes. I had about ten years worth of copes, I reckon. Um, and what cured it for me was to, was training as a psychotherapist. Which sounds it sounds a bit kind of off the wall. But what it was an incredibly curative thing to do because I I discovered that there was also there was a postmodern term in psychotherapy as well. You know, they call it the relational turn but this is this is key it's not deconstructive it's actually reconstructive because what what happens you know you get the same you get the same sort of decentering of objectivity as you do in the whole postmodern dynamic but the critical thing is uh, just by by virtue, of, you know, by, by virtue of the terrain, you know, it's, it's all about the dialogue between you and the other person. So you can't you can't just disappear into solipsism because otherwise, why the hell are you bothering in the first place?
2: Yeah. You know,
1: besides this, but this of this of this guy is going to pay you 50 quid at the end of the session anyway. And that's that's real enough. OK. Um, so so you've got to find a way of accounting for the, your own. Decenteredness as a subject, and also the other person's sort of decentered subjectivity, in a way which still allows for talk and communication and growth, hmm. um, which is which is just radically at odds with with the the very academic postmodernism, which just goes off on this kind of nihilistic one where everything is power, like there are no values, there's no meaning, and everything is power. And instead, it goes off on it goes off into something which is which I think is quite beautiful and quite accepting that says, okay, we're both in this mess, but yes. we're in it together. And we have do you know we we have a responsibility to our own our own shit, but we also have a responsibility to do our best to hear the other person in the full knowledge that chances are you're going to get it wrong most of the time. and it becomes just a radically self accepting and radically kind of you know does the, you know a willingness to reveal yourself as the, as a therapist comes into the, comes into the dynamic in a way which just isn't the case you know, it's, there's a lot of discussion in relational psychoanalysis about you know when when and where it's appropriate to reveal what's going on for you as the analyst which is just totally at odds with with what happens in more classical psychotherapy where the the analyst is object is objective and separate and detached and supposedly you know remains a kind of blank page and in the relational turn it's much more of a dialogue and it's much more connected and and it's much more it's it, it's much less polarized between a, a supposedly objective observer and a supposedly completely kind of open and exposed subject. And it's and and you know, and, and experiencing that, you know, and practicing with that and working with that and kind of taking all of those theories on board, um, against this very sort of nihilistic and um, value less um, encounter I'd had with the postmodern turn at university was phenomenally healing, and it also it, it just gave me gave me a very different angle on on how you can incorporate that insight of sort of the, the the way in which you know from a postmodern point of view it's like the world is looking back at you, you know suddenly you, you know your reality isn't solid anymore, and there's a sense in which everything's just made of meanings, but mm-hmm. you know having 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 experienced a much more having discovered a much more relational way of engaging with that kind of semiotic slippiness i just decided that fine okay so the world so i look at the world and the world is looking back at me a bit and everything's in, in continual relative motion so who cares so what so what everything's moving a bit and i'm moving with it
0: okay and, but that who cares isn't a nihilistic who cares it's like no okay, it I'm, isn't
1: it's just like whatever fine i've still got I've, I've still got to get up in the morning and i've still got to talk to people okay you know and i've still i still got to you know there's there's still stuff which is worth doing And the other, the other is there, you know, and they've got their shit going on as well, and you know, we just have to kind of muddle through, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that it sounds it sounds so lame when you put it like that, but it's from the, but you know, as a as a shift as a shift in perspective from from that very sort of lonely, um, that 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 lonely kind of relativism, you know, I I found it, you know, suddenly suddenly postmodernism is this incredibly rich domain. You know, it, it, if right, instead of exhausting culture, it just opens it all up. You know, and it it was as though I'd look, I'd been looking at something in photographic negative that was so, suddenly the lights came on and I could see the world in colour. It was just and and suddenly, you know, viewed viewed through that light. De- deconstruction is not; it doesn't have to be a destructive thing. You can also do reconstruction with it.
0: Yeah, I keep on saying that, people don't believe me.
1: It's true though it's true it's true you just have to you just have to make the leap of faith that says no actually the world is out there
0: it It's very terrifying uh to internalize the inside that everything is relative everything is power everything is always dominated by there might be a veneer of objectivity or a veneer of uh, you know whatever uh whatever face is on the different uh, sorts of transactions that we interact it it it's always a cover for something deeper primordial it's just uh, kind of levers and hydraulics of energy going around in all these different ways once you see that mask it it is, uh, you get shooken from, from my own perspective, growing up a Christian, uh, kind of having this realization that God is God and the way that we dress up God is completely arbitrary and just has to do with a bunch of different accidents that evolved over time into something that's stable enough for human beings to collectively worship that which is, or collectively name that which is nameless. But I, I went into this complete free fall, which was uh, that first moment in my my early twenties, breaking out of that, there was tremendous amounts of energy because I was free and I was releasing all the energy in that wild deconstruction of myself, my morality and everything that I had inherited. But at the end of that, I was completely exhausted, uh, completely devoid of purpose and direction. And I had to go through, uh, multiple phases of, of reconstructing myself. Um, And so I understand people from a traditional uh, mindset or conservative mindset say, don't go there, don't leap out of there, because that way lies ruin. You look into the abyss, and that's all you're going to see. Not only does it look into you, but that's all you're ever going to see. But when you get through that phase to the other side of that, you have all these tools in your pocket to say that I don't need to break down Christianity, I don't need to break down Islam, I don't need to break down uh, neo-capitalism or whatever, I can do that but i know that at the other end i'm trying to. to make meaning that that connects with other people ultimately i'm trying exactly. to stir yes. up other yes, people yes, 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 yes. and and then yes, and exactly. then and then collectively we're making this consensus reality mm-hmm. um but if we if we're responsible with that we can still do it logically we can still tie it to biology we don't need to go into radical identity politics
1: yes 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 yes, yes. all of that is it sounds like you and i came to a pretty similar place in terms of yeah. Okay. So so now we have we have to reconstruct. So now what? <laughs> Here we are.
0: <laughs> and then you have uh, you have uh, infinite material basically as an artist yeah. as a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you like you can go on a run. And you're like, okay, I can do I can do this with this. You can do anything with anything at this point uh, because yeah. you are grounded uh, between possibility and actuality. Like there's a more mature relationship after you give yourself over to that process.
1: Yeah, I think so, um, and it's it's also, uh, as you say, a slightly more humble way of approaching the mimetic field. You know, if you like the the symbolic field, you yeah. know, the the whole field of meanings. I, I have a I had a great friend. I say had because very sadly she died last year. Who, an extraordinary woman, a writer called Wendy Wheeler, who who was a pioneer in the field of biosemiotics. Which is a very yeah, I know you, you really need to go there if you're interested in this stuff. <laughs> um, but it, it's the, the study of meaning making in the natural world and across the natural and the human worlds, basically okay. a- applying the, 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 the ideas of you know it, semiotic dialogue to biological and even sort of organ, you know, organic chemical principles, you, yes. know, taking the idea that actually the world is not made of information, it's made of meanings and the dialogues between different creatures and different species and different you know ecological systems within the natural world are you know, they're, they're interchanges of meanings, you know, very much like, you know, the history of ideas, you know, the way the way ideas evolve in relation to one another,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: is a is an interaction, you know, between larger and small. you know, the, the, the greater and smaller megafauna of the, the domain of, you know, history of ideas. You know, you can yeah. see big ideas kind of blundering, blundering across the savannah and little ones kind of swarming. You know, what I'm, you, you know, what the sort of thing I mean. But I of course, that exactly happens in the natural world as well. You know, in a sense, you know, this uh, uh, an analogous, analogous process of meaning making is at work in the natural world as well. And to an extent, you know, uh, and it also it also gives you a lens for looking at the way the human world dialogues with the, 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 the rest of our planet,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it's not as though there is no interaction. I mean, if you one one example I found, which I really love is is a it's a t- species of North American moth. This is going to sound like I'm going off on some really bizarre tangent, but go, but bear with me for a moment. Um, this is, It's a species of moth, which is generally, it, it can be born either almost completely white or almost completely black, and it's just a kind of you know, throw of the dice. But I believe it used to be that they were almost all white because of something to do with their environment and the way they camouflaged themselves meant that it was just more advantageous for these moths to be born white rather than black. Yeah. But over the course of the 20th century, that has reversed, because pollution in the in the areas in which these these moths tend to inhabit has been such that actually the backgrounds that they live on have changed colour. So natural selection over time has meant has made it more advantageous, you know, in dialogue with human civilisation, you know, for for better or for worse. Yeah, um, has has changed the colour of these moths over the course of maybe of, of a few decades, maybe a hundred years. So it's it's not, and so so in in you know, in a sense the the, the dialogue of those moths as a species with their environment includes a dialogue with the human world and its environment and it's not as though those two things are separable from one another
0: could you could we explain um, the difference between information and meaning Uh because meaning uh, is, uh, meaning built out of information, but, uh, it's not reducible to information. Just like a sentence is reducible to words, but uh, you, it's made of words, but not reducible to words. Is that correct?
1: Um, can... I mean, the, the way Wendy would put it, um, I, I'm going to have to quote her here cause she's much better on this than me. Um, she, she borrows a lot from information theory, but you know, very, very, very crudely. She would say, um, that information is the study. Information theory is the study of the exception. It's the anomalous signal, um, mm. So if you're if if you're looking at if you're you're listening out you're listening out in a whole a whole load of crackle for the voice, you know, and then the voice is in a sense the exception to the crackle. Okay. If you understand okay. it, but the study yeah. of meaning, signal the noise. Yeah. Right, 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 exactly. Information theory is looking for the signal, not looking for the noise. But meaning is the, is the noise.
0: So you everything know, meaning, meaning except for pattern. that isolated signal,:
1: Yeah, me, every, everything except the anomalies. meaning information is is the thing that stands out. Okay. Um, meaning is the the ordinary patterns that everybody just tunes out because that's just what always happens.
0: Okay. But if so, everything is built out of meaning or we're continually engaging with meaning, we're not just chaotic forms in this soup of: uh, No, because
1: noise. it's not as though you know' it, it, it's, it's not because it's not noise. That's the point. From the okay. point of view of, it's only from the point of view of information theory that meaning is just noise or irrelevant or nothing or just um, to be filtered out. You know, and in fact, in, in fact, the whole domain of meaning is, you know, immensely complicated and worth studying in its own right. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a, an, an analogy, which I made on this is, is what it's like being a mother to a very small child. You know, the days just kind of bleed into one another because, you know, it's it's pretty repetitive looking after a small baby. Mm. Um, you know, the babies are lovely, but they're not great conversationalists. Um, and, you know, you and somebody might say, oh, you know, how was your day? And you'd say, oh, oh, my my, my daughter said back for the first time. Um, and that would be that would be the signal But in fact, the, the what was significant about the day was everything that went the way it normally does. You know the fact that we got up at the same time as every day, and the fact that you know she, she she needed changing x number of times, and she had x number of naps, and and these things these things are or aren't the same as what happened the day before. You know all of that is incredibly rich information if you're a mother, and if you listen to if you listen to a, a mother more more than a parent. I'm sorry, but you know if you, if you listen to a parent doing handover with a childcare person. They'll communicate all sorts of things about how the day how the, you, about what was ordinary about the day and also as well as what was extraordinary about the day mm-hmm. do, do you see what I'm saying?
2: Mm-hmm. you
1: know the study mm-hmm. of meaning is the study of what's ordinary and the study of and the study of information is the study of what's extraordinary okay you know and they're both yeah. they're both useful kinds of information but in, yeah. in in the context of a child it's as important to know what about the ordinary as it is to know about the extraordinary to know about the patterns. You know, it's if I'm if I'm looking after a baby, I need to know when she normally sleeps,
0: yeah. for example. You
1: know, I, I don't. And just what want to know. what all the different
0: signs mean, the body right, language, exactly. uh, like when when she starts getting grumpy, you know whether it's because of food or a bigger problem, uh, another instability in her life that you need to f- help her figure out how to manage.
2: Right.
1: Exactly. You know there are but you but you have you have you need you need all of that context, you need all of that ordinary in order to make any sense of the extraordinary hmm. and you know in, in in a sense you know we're we're a bit lost in trying to kind of in trying to parse the domain of meaning and you know whether it 's in the natural world or in the human world because because we're we 're massively massively hyper attuned to signal and not and and, and, and and under just dismissing everything else as noise. You know, Could at a very you... fundamental level, that's that's why why I think mothers and what what mothers do and you know, infant care and you know the the care of small children is so much mar- marginalised in the modern world because it's because almost all of it is about um, it, almost all of it is about meaning, not information.
0: You and know, that's so why it's all
1: it... in that very embedded and relational. Sort of There's this
0: uh, concept of unpaid labor that's uh, usually assigned to women in the home, uh, taking care of children uh, and maintaining a clean house. Um, that it, it seems like calling that unpaid labor is the attempt for the information economy uh, to attach information, to quantify yes, 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 and yes, to yes, reduce yes. All, that, uh, all that life into something that can be paid or unpaid or, yep. or and, uh, politicized. I, I, I reject in some way. that
1: whole framework. I, I I question that whole framework because I, I don't think it actually it, it doesn't help because it's it, it, all your all you're ever really doing if you do that is trying as you say trying to bring it into the world of information to try and make it make sense in that in those terms but it's never going to make sense in those terms because it's it's precisely what it, it it's all the stuff which doesn't make sense in those terms. Yeah. And if you try and if if you try and turn turn one thing, you, you, it, it's like it's like trying to teach a penguin how to do ballet. It's just not going to work.
0: <laughs> well, unless you, you know, deform the, 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 the penguin, the
1: penguin might kind of kind of do something that looks a bit like ballet. But at the end of, at the end of the day, the penguin's going to hate it, and it's going to be a bad ballet. Okay. <laughs> just, yeah. Just don't do that.
0: I really think uh, I've been toying with this for a really long time, and it does come from my experience working with children and kind of being, uh, kind of taking a p- parental role and doing mothering and fathering and understanding mm-hmm. the the balance of those two patterns of behavior and the need to switch between one and the other in order to optimize how the child is uh, going to attenuate themselves to themselves and the world. Uh, but I thought for a very long time that uh, feminism, academic fe- feminism, uh, when about trying to understand and promote the female in an in academic, very dry or masculine form of knowledge of information. And if you really want to understand what it is to be female, you need to understand the novel. The novel is the way in which it communicates the breadth of experience of uh, of, of what it is to be a woman and to go through all of that support work that's behind history, which I huh. thought of as of heresy. That, that's just an idea that I've been toying with, and I know it's very impartial, but I like to use that as a stepping stone into like understanding what you think of as the proper way to conceptualize the the mother, the female, and the feminine.
1: Uh, I, I can't. I can't pretend to have any sort of a last word on that. Although, just sort of thinking about women and the novel, um, if that's a line of thought that interests you, you should, you should have a look at the moral panic um, around women reading novels in the in the eighteenth century, because it, it was a moral panic. You know, people. Oh no! People were, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was oh. a, there was a full of, exactly a full scale sort of conservative i think it was I, I don't even know whether it was conservative or what it was but people people were deeply concerned about all of about you know women from from the aristocratic class down to your your sort of your serving maid that instead of doing whatever it was that women were supposed to be doing they'd be lolling around on sofas reading sensationalist novels and it was mm. a, it was a full-fledged possibly the first full-fat modern moral panic <laughs> um, it might it might just i'm not sure how it's relevant to what you're saying but it i it, my, my gut feeling is it kind of is yeah um there's this sense that you know well perhaps it's just you know women reading about themselves you know this is sort of somehow deeply dangerous um i mean the the short answer to that is I, I don't i don't know i think part of the reason why it's difficult to talk about women and femaleness is because it's so contextual um, you know, one of the things I think about a lot is Tao, is the the ancient the Jungian archetypes of the different ages of woman. You know, the maiden, the mother, and the crone, which is just not something which, which I think is desperately, painfully absent from feminism. You know, there's a you know a lot of what we think of as academic feminism just really just centres the maiden. Yeah. Um, there's and there's a little bit about the mother, but mostly as a problem to be solved. And a little bit about the crone, but only in the sense of actually these days of mostly just being an embarrassment to be shut up because they they know that biological sex exists.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, that's pretty much the only relationship that fem- the academic mainstream feminism has with older women.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, there's yeah. certainly there's certainly no sense of, um, you know, the the the, the time honoured position of older women, which was taking a step back from raising their own children and telling everybody else how to live their lives. You know, they you know old old women used to be used to be the guardians of you know the the what the ultimate weaponizers of public shame in the interests yeah. of you know general pro social mores. And I think I think women need to reclaim that. This is this is one of my <laughs> slightly more radioactive opinions. I think the, the 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 reactionary feminist move from where we are is is that liberal the you know the liberals by sort of by saying that we don't need we don't need shame anymore and in fact shaming people is deeply bad and wrong. And you can't even shame people with incredibly disgusting sexual kinks because that's just wrong somehow. Um, you're not allowed to shame anybody, um, lest you be shamed back. Um, I, I think I think women have kneecapped themselves really badly in that way. It just in terms of, you know, the relative balance of power of the sexes, because men, just by virtue of their biology, are always going to be stronger and they're always going to be more aggressive and they're always going to be more violent. So if we, but. Um, obsessive. The, the, Right, and, and obsessive, and, and all of these things, you know, the, the male is more aggressive, more violent, and um, etc. and so on, but, you know, it, it is my observation, I don't have any data on this, but it's my observation that men are morbidly terrified of being shamed, and they will also do almost anything in their power to make the women they love happy. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's my view that women want to, you know, that there's no point in trying to be as aggressive as men, because it's just never going to happen. And, and if, you're, if you're not going to wield the power of public shame, that just leaves you with, a, that leaves you with no option but to become this sort of um, hmm. cribally mobiliser of um, legislation. That's all you have left. So it's kind of not surprising that we find ourselves in a position where women are, you know, alternately sort of crying about how oppressed we are um, and then demanding new laws to control how everybody can behave so that we're not oppressed like that anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if, if we'd only rediscover our power to shame men when they do things which are bad and wrong and disgusting, you know, a lot of that would probably just go away. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit ideal, idealistic <laughs> here, but I feel like and it would also leave older women with something, you know, because young women can can wield a certain amount of power by weaponizing just being hot. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: but but, you know, that it, inevitably that that just dis, that dissipates with time. You know, we yeah. all will become um, old and saggy in the end. And yeah. if, you can't, if you can't weaponize your hotness and you can't shame people, then you, you really do have nothing left. So it's no wonder, no wonder that older women are really desperately marginalized. Now mm. I think for, for, the sake of, for, for the sake of the crones of this world, and actually for the sake of the world in general, we need shame back, and, and specifically as a feminist project, I think we need to reclaim public shaming.
0: Well, as long as there's uh, some sort of uh, measurement of accountability to keep you guys in line. <laughs> I mean, as long as the shame is wielded by the wisdom and without yeah. wisdom, that, without wisdom, I don't want that. I, I don't think that it'd be good just to bring out that nuclear weapon again.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. You know, you need, which, which actually, it kind of brings us back to shared values, doesn't it? You know, because if you, if you can't, you can't really mobilize public shame unless there are shared values. And perhaps that's the problem. You know, as long, as long as you have a, an integralism of the self, rather than any any sort of a shared moral framework you know there, it's you know public shaming doesn't really work because all you you, you have to you, you have to whip up the mob you know you can't you can't just rely on all of all of the other old biddies to to also talk with you about the same stuff necessarily
0: well the relationship of the let's just say the crone to the power over the community is deeply deeply rooted in the personal Uh, She has that power because everybody has known her from uh, birth and she knows everybody from their most vulnerable state up to their most powerful state. And in this uh, kind of evaporated realm of social media, there is no personal connection. There's only personality connections. So the power of that form of femininity that is so rooted in community isn't there because there isn't that actual community.
1: Yep. I think that's accurate you know what you do about that i don't know yeah um, i don't think i don't think there's a whole lot that can be done apart from you know enough people taking a personal decision that they're just going to commit to a place and actually talking to their neighbours yeah. you know, i don't i don't really know that there is much else that we can do
0: yeah we're all lost in the anywhere and and so there there has to be new moral frameworks to give us uh, a compass there has to be a compass in within anywhere and right now the magnetic forces are just spinning us around and spinning us around and it's all about
1: yeah I, I wonder whether i wonder whether that's even realistic or whether whether we, it mightn't mightn't just be more pragmatic to to just opt out altogether and yeah. you know go make in a sort of mutiny mutiny of the of the consciously self-chosen somewheres you know we might all be anywheres but it doesn't mean we can't choose to be somewheres yeah yeah um and paul kingsnorth wrote a really lovely essay about how about national character which he which he believes completely is a thing i agree with him national character is a thing but in his view it's not based on it's not based on anything as ridiculous as you know somebody's dna it's based on what it's like to inhabit that place Mm -hmm. And the habits, the habits of a culture that accumulate over time just by virtue of, you know, developing a relationship with the place, Um, you know, what the the, the texture of the soil or the shape of the footpaths or, you know, what the the different colors that the landscape has or whatever, you know, the different places affect people in different ways. You know, you're obviously going to develop quite a different national character if it's too hot to work for four hours in the middle of the afternoon. Than it is if you live in a temperate climate you know these things are fairly obvious when you when you think about it and mm-hmm. perhaps it's not even possible to have had to have developed a class of anywhere's full stop you know if we didn't have um, mechanical climate control you know if we didn't have central heating and air conditioning you know there are the, the it, it would not even have been possible to export a sort of temperate climate work ethic to somewhere like Abu Dhabi. you know so it's, <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm kind of i'm i'm riffing a bit here but 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 my no, point it's true. is hmm. My, but just just bringing bringing it back to communities and shared values, you know, rather rather than sort of you know, sticking my pin in the map and saying well you know I, I, my vote is for Christianity or my vote is for an, this ism or thatism, I'd say you know if we actually just got offline a little bit more, she says talking to talking to you on the internet, um, mm-hmm. and spent a bit more time walking around our places, you know, we might find that you know in, in common with other people who live in those places we can derive enough of a set of common values just out of living there together and all the and the things that we have to do in order to make that work you know I don't really see any other way it's good that we're going to end up actually really being able to reconstruct something there I, don't, is... I don't see any other way it's going to go
0: to echo back to uh, that novel insight, which I've actually replicated in my fiction about this realm of the memo verse that is actually inhabited by creatures. Uh, like if you if you think of fiction as this realm where there's all these invented forms that kind of gamble about, you can see these big lumbering epics and these small little yeah, yeah, poems yeah. flying around. Mm-hmm. Within what we call echo chambers, echo chambers are the recreation of a space that's created out of memes or of, out of ideas or out of identities and group behaviors. And we are experimenting with uploading ourselves into this internet space that is formed out of relationships and environments and even temperatures of discourse, right? And the how fast the information flows, what kind of emotionalities involve the, the moderator or the self-governing principles moderate. The temperature of that information mm. and how people uh, kind of come to be. It could be the case that we are experimenting and we can't go back. I don't think we can go back to until no. all the lights turn off. We're not going to go back to. Uh, it will you know, happen. Pretense.
1: I hope it's not in my lifetime.
0: Well, it ha- it's <laughs> happening in Texas right now. So you
1: know,
0: it is. Right. It is. Yeah, that's but a joke. But if we that. if we kind of uh, kind of revisit that. Uh, one-toned critique of the echo chamber and see it, see it as there's these tribes that are trying to reform space that, that's built out of something that's not connected to uh, a reality or a rhythm of day and night cycle. It's connected to just people uploading constantly their information. We can navigate that a little bit better and understand that we're in, like you said, with weird Catholic Twitter or there's different domains of Twitter where you step in and you're like, okay, the these people use GIFs all the time. They're always reacting with GIFs and you kind of adapt yourself to the flow of information there. Or like uh, some uh, this new app called Clubhouse, which <laughs> is just built out of conversations and it's a kind of a reboot of a chat room. Uh, but the way that information flows in there is kind of... Uh, Enlightening or lightening up certain other aspects of human uh, behavior. Uh, These are just kind of ideas. If we can understand uh, the terrain of this stuff, we can more than uh, we can not just critique certain patterns of behavior, but we can actually understand and engage with them, and then bring everybody uh, kind of awake to what's actually happening. We can build better houses, build better uh, commerce, and and uh, uh, places there.
1: I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I mean, in my more, in my more kind of black pill moments, you know, by, by my, my theory of um, the social media kind of devouring of everything is that it starts out mediating, um, and then it moves to replacing whatever it started out mediating, and finally it grotesquely parodies it, and that's just the natural trajectory of digital communications.
0: Could you, could you walk that through with an example? Mediating, replacing, uh, me pirating.
1: Th- let me think. Um, so, I'm trying trying to think of a good example because there are there are loads, but it's 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 picking out a really a good juicy one. Yeah. So, I, I suppose I suppose a good example would be um, local newspapers. Um, if you think about if you think about, like so Facebook might start out um, mapping local community connections um, and and it, and it would start out just facilitating communications amongst people in the local community, say um, and and but, but before long um, it, it it stops just mediating and it comes to replace um, say local newspapers. Or you know, but a whole bunch of a whole bunch of social structures that were there before. You know, suddenly suddenly a, the local newspaper can't afford. You know, the local newspaper which was free but which ran on on small ads can't run anymore because all of the simply because it it's not needed because Facebook, um, if Facebook carries all of those communications that used to go into the small ads, um, and and then you take it on a step long a step further from that, um, and suddenly your neighbors are all having fights about dog shit in the park um and and all of it, and it's gone from it's gone it's gone from mediating to replacing to grotesquely parodying a, a a local newspaper and 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 the the job that a local newspaper did within a local community do you see okay. what i'm saying and, yes. and, and i i see that as the template for for how digital communications uh, rips through the social you yeah. know i mean just uh, for, for a bit of context, you know, I'm, I'm kind of addicted to the internet, and I, I love the internet, and I have been just obsessed with it pretty much since I discovered it existed in about 1998. So I, I say all of this kind of with love, but it's but also with hatred because I see what I see what it's doing, and yeah, it's, it, it, it's I have a very ambivalent relationship to the internet. I love it. There's got to be it.
0: another step though. Once uh, everybody <laughs> exhausts their argumentation.
1: Right. Right, right, but but what is that? Cuz that's kind of where we are right now. We're in this we're, we it it feels like we're getting to the point where it's just grotesquely parodying absolutely everything. You know, even just like the entirety of democracy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is now yeah. Being Trump you can protesting. see Trump as the grotesque parody of the presidential uh, uh, Yeah, kind of, and I mean
1: the, everything, everything that was form. everything that happened, you know, on January the 6th in at the center of your government, you know. It felt like it was it you know, that all every all of the paranoia which was mobilized in that day. And in that in that event, you know, was all had all been fanned by by internet communications. You know, in a sense, you know, stuff which had grown up in, in the disintegration of local, the local, the social, locally yeah. speaking. Yeah. Um. You know, where people are people are, are sending these paranoid fantasies back and forth because it, it's it's better it for almost almost kind of to feel something. Um. And they genuinely believed that they were the ones saving democracy. You know, and, and, you know, who, who in fact, who will the real Democrats, will the, yeah, they they everybody believed that they were saved, both sides believed that they, they were, you know, that, that they were the ones who were saving democracy there. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And I think, you know, many, 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 many PhDs, I imagine, will be written on on the truth of what actually went down that day. But, <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, the digital communication, grotesquely parodying something, you know, democracy is a case in point. Yeah. That's kind
2: of
1: gender where we are. yep race yeah i mean right yep yeah, yeah yep. you know when you when you start treating identity as something as sort of something analogous to an avatar which we can edit and update anytime we want because it's separable from our bodies then yeah it's going to become a sort of grotesque parody of itself because it has no referent in the real world yes it's bizarre i i discovered my old live journal i don't know if you remember live journal yeah um I, I've, I found I went digging back through my old live journal from like 2005 or something, and dis, and discovered that I was I, I was very active on a now defunct London lesbian community for a number of years. Um, long, it, it, I was, um, and one of the things that people were just beginning to really obsess about there was how they identified um and it was it was really it was a phenomenon it was it, it really was a kind of product of internet culture because you know here here were all of these people who looked like whatever they looked like in real life um, maybe they wore their hair a bit longer or a bit shorter but on the internet with with none of that to cross-reference against it was all about how you felt on the inside oh i identify as this and i identify as that and everybody was coming up with new terms for you know did new subcategories of you, uh, you know, and, um, am I completely lesbian, or am I this, or am I that? And and also, and, and the transgender thing was, was was just taking off at the same time. And I don't think it's a coincidence that those two things came together, because it really is about the sort of internet-enabled understanding of identity,
2: yeah.
1: which is detachable from the body. Um, and I and think, sex and, and too. again, yeah, and, porn, and it's detachable
0: yeah. from sex. Yeah, I mean, uh, sex has become detached from the physical body through the mediating influence of of porn, pornography. Yeah. It, it, uh, it mediated sexual desire. It replaced sexual mm. uh, activity between bodies, yep. and now yep, yep, it's yep. a grote- it, very yep, it's grotesque, very constantly slips well. gro- yep. grotesque parody of itself. You said referring to the real world uh, is is kind of where things kind of slip. Without that, referring to something in the real world, like the embodied experience, the actual relationships that you have in your community. If we can't return to that, can we not just kind of stockpile enough information in the internet that that becomes a real referent? If there's enough uh, of a sense of self that you accumulate over time in the internet that people can refer to, I don't know, there's a beginning of the idea there uh, to kind of move past the stage of infinite parody or of grotesque parody without, we can't go back unless the lights turn off. So if we don't turn off the lights, what's going to happen?
1: Uh, I don't know. Um, But one of of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is what's what's left over from the internet. Um, The supplement, to to borrow a phrase from from the deconstructionists, you know, the the supplement, um, the the bit of meaning which isn't captured by the definition which you try and put on it in language. You know, there's always something left over, and that's why you end up with this eternal deferral of meaning. You know, in the postmodern, in the the yeah. deconstruction, the structuralist analysis, um, and you know, in in what the internet first mediates and then replaces and then grotesquely parodies, there's always something which is left over. You know, it's the body is left over from it. But there are but there are also certain kinds of communication which are just more difficult or downright impossible on the internet. There are certain conversations which I refuse to have via direct message, for example um there are there are certain things which i which i don't even like saying over the phone or certain kinds of com you know if i like, for 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 example for example i would never i mean i'm happily married now so it's academic but i would never dump somebody by email even when i was dating um because i because to me it's just it's just wrong to do that not in person um and yeah, i've been i've been thinking about this in the context of leo Strauss and his famous essay on persecution and the art of language mm-hmm. um where he he writes about um the double meanings encoded in, um, in, in the writings of serious thinkers it, at times when persecution was just a norm and, you know, the orthodoxies of what it was and wasn't permissible to say are very strong. So you could get punished or, you know, tortured or ostracized or whatever for saying things which are considered bad. Um, and his his argument, it's, it's a subtle argument and I'm butchering it horribly here, but his argument is that, you know, if you, if you learn to read carefully, you can you can find you you can you can discern a trail of you know secondary meanings in the in the texts that come out of this time, which were intentionally laid um, for somebody with the right education and the right set of references to be able to follow it and figure out the, the extra layer to whatever it is that's being said. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of one, one of the things I think about a lot is is the emergence of you, a, a new poetics of dog whistling for the internet. And a new a new art of not saying actually of not spelling it out, uh, a new art of, of saving certain things for in real life, a new um, a new practice and a meditation of un- of understanding what what it is actually not appropriate to digitise, um, and yeah and that's and there are plenty of things which work just fine on the internet. Um, and, it's in, that can, and if we're not going to turn all of the lights out, uh, and, I, and I sincerely hope that doesn't happen in my lifetime, you know, there are, there are lots of ways that the Internet makes our lives a whole lot easier. But I yeah. think we, we could do with developing a much more conscious practice for what we intentionally choose not to digitize and what we intentionally choose to, to practice or, you know, to, to reserve for other domains, yeah. what we yeah. choose to leave out, what we choose to leave unstated.
0: I, I practice that uh, in in crafting my identity, because i I'm not just a user now, I'm a content creator, I'm a personality. Right. So I have to be aware of what I'm doing, what I'm uploading, how I interact with uh, my audience and with the world at large, and uh, just being conscious about that in order to survive. Right. right basically and right. one thing that i developed is that i don't like arguing in comment fields so i'm not going to be argumentative and i'm not going to take the bait i'm not going to go i'm not going to do a yep. back and yep. forth yep. 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 because yep. i'm not yep. going to put my emotion down plus there's an asymmetry somebody accused me of being a homophobe like putin the other day and i commented on their way i i, I critiqued how the the form of calling people a phobe i just critiqued mm-hmm. that i didn't answer the actual accusation but i said i don't trust the the framework that goes around and interprets things as a phobia because mm-hmm. you're only looking at one thing and you're you're assigning intention to it and you're denying other ways of reading that in order to gain some sort of standing as somebody who has the power to judge somebody as being afraid or having a phobe or whatever and then somebody else is like, well, you're deflecting. I, I, I will answer that, but not in a comment. I will take things, I will answer criticism when I can perform them in front of a camera. Because I, you can hear my voice, you can hear my tone, and then it's more real to me. And I'm not subject to some anonymous account defining terms and then constantly twisting my words to suit their argument. I'm not going to do that. So that's one example of uh, knowing where my medium of argumentation and of rhetoric uh, goes where I can put yeah, uh, certain yeah, thoughts yeah, yeah. in one yeah, form yeah, yeah. not another.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I feel like we would we would all you know all of us who are very online in one form or another would benefit from from thinking a lot more openly and a lot more you know, thinking more publicly about this you know I and mean, mm-hmm. perhaps it would be hopelessly meta for most people um, yeah. but I mean but I guess you know that there are very simple principles, like never argue with somebody who has symbols in their Twitter bio. Just don't do it. Um,
2: what, what do you mean like symbols?
1: You you know when they have when they have like flags or hashtags or or little emojis or something in their Twitter bio. You know yeah. it's a solid rule of thumb, just not to get into an argument with yeah. those people.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, just just and, and and you know you know what I'm saying. Just just yeah. don't bother. Yeah. Um, because it's it's not worth anybody's time. And, and it's like the, the Chinese proverb, you know, never wrestle a pig because you'll only get dirty. And besides, the pig likes it. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Just exactly. don't do it. Exactly.
1: And, yeah. um, you know, sort of, you know, jumping, jumping to a slightly different domain. I often bring myself into my writing, but I do that and, and it can it might look as though I'm being quite exposing doing that. But there's generally quite there's generally a lot of reflection that goes into where I do or don't decide to bring even sometimes quite personal stories. And I'm happy to do that. But there's always a lot of thought that goes into it. You know, it says, you know, is this actually something that I want to share? Is this something that I'm comfortable sharing? You know, how, how does this contribute to the to the picture of me that's out there? You know, is this and it's a judgment call every time. And, but there's also a me which is just not it's not subject to that. And there are there are boundaries, you know, and I don't necessarily know what they are until until I meet one. But but right. they're there, and there are there are aspects of myself which are, are not are not available for digitization and and that's just non-negotiable.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think yeah. it's it's important to be very conscious about that because if, if one isn't, then you know the the principle of mediating and then replacing and grotesquely parodying applies there as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. There is a. Way in which, um, I think you and I both went through this, uh, well, okay, we talked about going through the 20s, the postmodernism, kind of uh, losing our ground and flying into the crazy world of anything could be anything. But there's also a, uh, with regards to being meta or to being self-referential as a thinker, is something that people in their 20s do compulsory. People who are more mature Learn to contextualize the self, and going through that phase, or knowing when somebody your interlocutor, whoever you're speaking to, is in a certain phase of personal development, where they're not necessarily narcissistic so much as they're just in a stage where they're always thinking through themselves, and they can't they can't escape themselves, so they're always referring everything to to themselves. It was very relieving for me when I passed through that, and I could I could <laughs> command when I brought myself into my work, uh, and then because it was constellated with other things, but it took me a yeah. long time to get over myself in
1: that yeah, way. Yeah, again, psychotherapy training is a fairly kind of brutal, you know, few short years of boot camp on that, because a lot it involves an enormous amount of feedback from your fellow trainees. You know, you're you're reflected back to yourself in sometimes fairly, un, always, always gently, always kindly, but often unflinchingly by mm-hmm. the people that you're working with. In a way, you know, you, you build up an enormous amount of trust that people people reflect the you that you are as they see it back to you in a way which is illuminating but you know can sometimes kind of shake you absolutely to the core you know and things you believed about yourself just turn out to really not be true um you know and, and ways you believed you come across just really turn out not to be how the rest of the world sees you at all and up, but after a while you build up a more kind of relational a more textured picture um, and i suppose all of that happened when i was in my early 30s which is about about the kind of point you're talking about anyway so it it accelerated that process in a way I was profoundly grateful for um, made it made it a lot more a lot more comfortable and a lot of, a lot less experimental being me yeah. than perhaps it had been before
0: i to go back to that idea that i was trying to grapple for towards creating stability within a realm of you know experience that's not directly related to solid reality, so this uh, this realm of identity and the realm of the internet without a referral to the stability of diurnal rhythms of actual work of the actual body has a bunch of problems in it. If we can form trust, if we can use trust as a way to build stability within a relational poetics of the internet of internet personalities, that would be. Like the goal or if we can form trust, then we can actually begin to build something that's more real uh, in the way that we communicate with each other online. Um, and there, if we look at it as trust, then we're going to have to investigate. Well, what can formulate trust? What what is what? What's that built out of? And I look at the way in which institutions such as the New York Times are expending their authority. They're now uh, captured by ideology, and the truth is something uh, secondary to getting their way. In a way, so these institutions are uh, of the media are devolving in their ability for me to trust them, which went away a long time, but more more and more people are distrusting these institutions. And now I go and I defer my trust to the individual, the individual writer, the individual journalist. If they have a name, if I see that they have a, a set of standards that they apply to themselves, then I still, I still form trust, but it's no longer with the institution, because I know that the institutions are captured. But I can still uh, learn to trust individuals, because I, I, over time, I see how they behave.
1: Ultimately, I don't think there's anything that really builds trust apart from uh, mutual interdependence. Um, If if the the difficulty with trying to create interdependence Hmm. on the internet is that the the whole thing is premised on being able to log on and log off as you please. You know, that's pretty much how the whole thing was built. You know, you opt in or opt out as you like. And so, you know, it it forecloses the, the domain of actual interdependence pretty much from the word go. You know, in the, in, I mean, in the sense that in the sense that I'm interdependent with my husband and my daughter, you know, yeah. they, they, they rely on me and I rely on them. And that's a that's an absolutely rock solid, you know, incredibly textured um, set of obligations, which I'm I'm committed to. And that's that's a huge part of that's a huge part of my, my world and what matters to me. <laughs> and they, the, the Internet is designed to be everything but that. You know, you're, you're never really interdependent with, you. you can be, you can be well known on the internet, but in a sense, you can always slip away. And that's kind of how it's, that's how it's designed. And that's, that's the appeal of it. You can, you can drift in and out of conversations.
0: Yeah. And you, you can know, block you can, people that's sending you information them. that they want to see. Yeah.
1: You know, I can't, I can't block my husband just because he says something slightly rude to me about what I'm wearing today. Yeah. I mean, I, I could, but you know, it's not going to be a very functional marriage for very long if I do do that. Um, yeah. And it's you know the, the 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 two diametrically opposed ways of relating to people, and I, and I suppose you know if you can imagine some form of internet where we're interdependent with one another, then, yeah. um, as in really really truly genuinely interdependent with one another, then perhaps I can I can see something like what you're describing taking place, but until that happens, then you know I'm skeptical that we're going yeah. to be able to right. replace.
0: Well, I think it's going to happen no matter what. I think that as you write and as your voice gets out there and you attract an audience and then you attract conversations and, and put yourself out there more and more and more, you become stabilized in there and then you form a sense of responsibility to your identity, your personality that you crafted, but also that's reflected in the people that are, that are responding to you and starting to trust you through your information, through somebody as a voice. I think that we replicate that as we as we proceed and as we formulate solid relationships that aren't just formed out of agreement or likes, but something more it's interesting. Than
1: that. So you're, so you're talking about a kind of ethics of leadership in a meme community. That's what you're talking about, really, isn't Is it? Is it
0: leadership? Is that the yeah? That, that
1: you, that's that's what that? you're describing. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, you 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 have a significant platform. I'm kind of nobody. Um, but, but I mean, you have you have. A meaningful I think you have the sometimes. makings of
0: being somebody, though. <laughs> you're not just well, you're, anybody anymore. And we'll you're, tell well, you that. you're
1: very, you're very kind, <laughs> but I mean, you, you have a significant platform and you know regular regular viewers and you know this this, this very sort of textured um, yeah. and and well established kind of dialogue with with a whole sort of memetic community, if you like, of a, a virtual community. And and what you're what you're describing is is a is an ethic of interdependence with that community or an ethical mm-hmm. inter- interdependence with that community yeah, yeah. you know in a in, in a sense that community sustains you and and you're, you're a trusted figure you know for a community and it, it's a it's a relationship mm. which isn't just a fly by night thing so, yeah, I, I actually actually yeah i can i can see what you're saying and in that in that context I, I can completely understand how you might be talking about a sort of stabilized identity you know but being being a kind of being an anonymous you know but being an egg on twitter is a different ballgame.
0: yeah it is it i totally remember is. The,
1: it was a the, the point where I stopped being anonymous, my, my Twitter account that I, I, I tweet from now is it started out as my old, and I was still, I was still, um, I was still anonymous when I started writing for Unheard, and I think I was, it was, I was sort of two or three months into having written for them pretty much every week when I, I made the momentous decision that I was going to go anonymous because it just seemed really stupid to have my actual name bylined on unheard when i was anonymous <laughs> so i was anonymous on twitter i just thought this does this doesn't really make sense so so i went anonymous and i, th- I think i it's put i think i went back and deleted my entire twitter history up to that point before i before i did go anonymous just you did I the couldn't great reset i did the great reset and I, and I don't think it was a stupid thing to do because i couldn't remember what i said about yeah. what and i didn't give a shit who read it yeah. Yeah. You know, but this this comes back again to the poetics of dog whistling and the poetics of what's left unsaid on the internet, doesn't it? You know, that there's the sort of the idea that actually, you know, there are there are some things which it's better not to say or that it's better not to say online, and that actually there's a there's a there's an ethical there's a personal and an ethical and a, and also an aesthetic dimension to that.
0: And you that know, changes it. between uh, you can you can say the unsaid when you're anonymous because it's not tracing right. back to you or you don't or you don't care uh, but once right. you become yeah, your, yeah. or once you start to tie so, your real life to yourself then you start thinking about the game exactly. differently
1: yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, and it's it's just you know there are people who are like well you know I should just be able to say what I like but you know either those people yeah. are lying to themselves or they have the hide of a rhino or possibly both um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, there are some there are some people who are just kind of slightly sociopathic and just genuinely don't care, but I really think they're a very small minority.
0: Yeah. What do you want to do on the internet now that you're Mary Harrington?
1: <laughs> I, I I don't know. I mean, I'm, I've just been sort of I I, I just like write, I like internet rabbit holes and I like writing about stuff. Um, I, I I quite I've got about ten books that I quite like to write, which I may or may not get round to writing. Um, there's an argument i want to make about why why feminism yeah feminism against progress is the argument i want
0: to make at the moment could you give me a byline for that feminism against
1: feminism progress. against progress i, it, I think it's this my, is
0: why i reached out to you <laughs> well
1: because i think feminism feminism should oppose progress um, no my, just
0: your ideas on feminism but feminism right, against Progress. Feminism
1: against progress. Um, okay. it's, it's my view that, the, I mean, the idea of progress is very, very difficult to disaggregate from feminism, because they, the two have sort of emerged together. And it's, it's pretty much taken as axiomatic that the, what being, to be a feminist is to be progressive. Um, yes. I, I contest that idea because I think, I, I, well, I, I don't believe in progress. I am a progress atheist, which makes me in, in the 21st century something a bit like being a, a, a Christian, an atheist, was it would be it would have been in the 17th century. I mean, basically, okay. means moral dropout. If you don't, believe you don't progress. by
0: progress, you're not talking about iterative improvement of technology.
1: No, or I mean I, societies. I mean, human, I mean human progress. I don't think there's any meaningful sense in which humans are better now than we were say 2,000 years ago. I just think that's okay. a bullshit idea. It,
0: but like, our institutions I, can progress in their refinement, but not human behavior.
1: No, I, I don't think institutions really progress either. I think just think there are always trade-offs. You know, some things get better, but other things get worse. I, I okay. don't believe in pro, I don't believe pro, uh, I don't believe taken in total that human's progress. I just think things change and evolve.
0: Okay. You know, well, it doesn't so mean I don't
1: you, think things change. But, okay. but anyway, I think
0: You use so, the word so, evolve which is kind of tied to progress.
1: Right, but but there's no there's no moral value attached to evolving. I mean this is, hmm. this was the biggest mistake people made in the way they read what Charles Darwin was talking about. You know, he talked about survival of the fittest and people have taken that people have moralized that idea as though as though fittest means best. But in fact, fittest just means most most appropriately adapted for its specific context.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, there's no moral sense attached to it at all. You know, if, if okay. just because uh, just because the North American peppered moth is is on average a slightly different colour now than it was 100 years ago, doesn't make it better or worse. It just makes it more more efficiently ac- adapted to being camouflaged in a more polluted environment. Yeah. You know. That, well, that how it how do you,
0: how, can, how can we overlay that with? Uh, how feminism uh, sought to adapt females to the modern environment. There's
1: a very, 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 very long answer to that. But I mean, the, the, the very, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, the idea, I mean, in, in my view, feminism is just the latest iteration in a very ancient conversation, which is namely how can men and women live together, given our overlapping, but not always, but sometimes competing interests. You know, that question is as old as humans because some, some, some of men and women's interests are common, obviously, um, but some of them, but in, in some ways, in some ways our interests and our inclinations kind of aren't, yeah. you know, there's, I mean, it's very, you, 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 they overlap a lot, in some ways they're, they're slightly at odds with one another. Um, you know, and people have, people have been negotiating that in different ways for as long as there have been humans, I think. Okay. But, the, but, but what we call feminism is just the latest iteration in that argument, and it's specifically what what the form that that argument takes under un, in modernity under industrial civilization mm-hmm. um, because there are certain things that change in terms in the so in in social and economic terms you know suddenly you have this very sharp split between the the domestic and the private you know within which you know roles which were actually very much in a way in a weird way more egalitarian like in in, in the 14th or 15th century people people everybody worked women worked as much as men. You know, but but work happened in the household. And people might have combined looking keeping an eye on children with doing artisan work and you know, small you know, tending a small holding and making a bit of this and that to sell and it wasn't it wasn't that one partner went out to work and the other partner stayed at home and the roles were very starkly divided. That was okay. that that's really an, an artifact of, you know, a very particular way of organising work, you know, in, in a manufacturing civilization. Yes. Um so um so so that's so actually, you know, what people, the, the trad wife subculture is just not very trad at all. It's not nearly trad enough. You know, I think a much better way of looking at trad wives will be going back to the 14th century, not the 1950s. You know, okay. and say, well, you know, what can't we reorganize work altogether so that everybody works in productive households like they did in the 14th century? You know, where everybody works, but they're basically, you know, where, where the, a couple work together and juggle childcare together around working from a sort of, from a household unit. You know, why, yeah. why can't we do it like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And all of a sudden, you know, the how you how you negotiate all of those questions about who does what work and what work is more valued because it will change change texture and change complexion altogether. You know, and a lot of the a lot of the feminist arguments about workplace mores. Potentially, you know, will potentially go away, but you'd end up with a whole load of new arguments about how men and women reconcile their interests.
0: Yeah, there's really, this New York Times article just the other day. I only saw the photo, but there was a photo of a woman and a man, and the man was at his desk on his computer, and the woman was taking care of the child. And the interpretation that oh, yes. I saw of that was that they're both stuck at home, but the woman's still dealing with the child, and the man gets to do his job, kind of thing. Right. So I don't know the particulars of that uh, relationship I don't know the particulars of how they compromise that but the overlaying so-called feminist interpretation is that the woman is labored with the less valuable work which is yep. merely yeah, taking yeah. care of the new human being where the man that is to do the real
1: offensive work take, personally. I mean it's a very clinton feminist take but it's a really offensive take I mean how how dare somebody say that it's it's degrading for women to look after their own children when did it become a source of shame to love our children I just think that's a completely bonkers idea.
0: I don't understand oh. how you can not understand the value of that. But because it's a hidden value. That love you can't monetize that. No. It's invisible. Exactly. It, it's meaning, exactly. it's, it's this, noise. Yeah,
1: it's it's meaning, it's noise, exactly. And you cannot monetize it or at least my, my God, people have tried over the last few decades. Well,
0: you can, you can, uh, you know, divvy up. This is the problem. If you start doing this, then you're going to have a terrible relationship. But you can say, well, "Here's how many hours I did this, and here's how many hours you did that," and then everything yeah, and your becomes.
2: your marriage will
1: be fucked within five years. <laughs> and then you're fucked. You're totally yeah, fucked. Your marriage will be over within five years. The mo- if we, you start scorekeeping like that, your marriage is yeah. in trouble. You know. Yeah. yeah. And actually, you know, you have to bring a spirit of generosity and a spirit of um, of being all in. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a very but because, femi- you know, what we think of as feminism has become very stuck in the signal paradigm rather than the noise paradigm. And I, th- I think we need to make the feminist case for noise, basically, hmm. you know, as having a value in its own right. Yeah. You know, which, you know, I, I, I suppose I just, you know, in, in flippant moments, I call my politics a reactionary ecofeminism. But it is because, you know, the, 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 the it, it connects what I'm talking Making the case for noise is also making the case for the natural world. And for a more respectful and relational um, encounter with the natural world you know which is mostly made of noise not not signal yeah Um, and trying trying to find our place within that and a relationship to that and trying to find our place within a family or a social unit and our relation to that and 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 all of that you know it has to come from a much more of a place of humility rather than mastery and and I, i don't i don't see a i i don't see a Beneficial role for a feminism which is committed to um, handing mastery to women, even in equal proportion to men. You know, let alone kind of over and above men. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't take I don't take a position on you know which of those is actually taking place at the moment. I think you
2: know
1: trying trying to hand mastery to everybody rather than teaching everybody to be a little bit more humble. You know just doesn't feel like a
2: good
0: and healthy thing to be doing right now if the that that speaks to a lot of different problems with a lot of different political paradigms that are working out where people are seeking empowerment rather than seeking service like that yeah if the value exactly. was how can I serve my community uh, if everybody if that was promoted in a re, in a family relationship in the neighborhood et cetera et cetera instead of what am what am I owed? Uh, What is my right? My right is housing. My right is water. My my rights are this, that and other thing rather than that responsibility and that servitude. But that that speaks to I, I can see a lot of people being very wary of promoting that if you promote in your, let's say, feminism that we are we're promoting a feminism of service and we're asking men to, to serve us, and we're going to serve men, which I guess is kind of the seed of that trad thing. There's some some form, my husband serves me, I serve him, and everybody's in this relationship of service rather than this other uh, paradigm. It makes you weak. If you say, I want to be the servant, you are seen as weak, um, unless you understand that you're reversing the whole thing. Yeah, one of
1: something which I... Find myself thinking about um, in the context of this. You know, once you once you start from the premise that you know, in fact, we don't we don't own ourselves and we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to each other, and you know, we have a degree of choice about which others we we belong to, but not absolute choice. I mean, even your friends choose you as much as you choose them. And you know, I have I have incredibly annoying friends who I love to bits, but there was a point where I just accepted that they were just going to be in my life, and the fact that I that I found them annoying was neither here nor there because I still love them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, know, you know and you know there, there are people that just choose you and there are relationships that just choose you and, yeah. and that there comes a point where you just have to say okay this is this is the foundation this is just the shape my life is and and I'm all right with that um but when once you start thinking about... You start thinking about politics in a relational way like that you don't have to go very far along that line of reasoning before you realize that you you will soon need to be making a case for ethical hierarchies uh, or uh, an ethical reappraisal of hierarchy if we all belong to ourselves and we're all the same then we can try and abolish hierarchies but if we all belong to each other you know just like in you know in the in the animal world there are some animals which are bigger than others um, if we all belong to one another, we will find that some some people some people are, are more suited to a leadership role than others. For example, some people will be are more suited to different kinds of different kinds of activity. And if we, you know, and that and that could be fine if we all had a, had a relationship of mutual responsibility to one another. I mean, every, everybody accepts, for example, that a, you know a four year old in a family sometimes needs to do as she's told. Um, <laughs> you know, the the, the anecdote I. The the, the the story that makes me smile is you know my little door, my my little girl sitting there on the bath mat with with not a stitch on having decided that she doesn't want to get in the bath and she said to me I don't want to get in the bath and I said well you're having you you're getting in the bath and she said you can't make me and I said well I can actually and <laughs> uh, I picked up <laughs> and that's and that's that's you know in a very gentle way that's my prerogative as her mother you know and that's you know that's that's completely appropriate. I mean, I know that there are some very radical egalitarian parents who wouldn't have done that. Who might have sort of spent, spent an hour negotiating instead. I I don't think that's a good way to live with your child. You know, I think there's a, there's a role for authority and there's a role for just accepting that there are natural hierarchies. Um, You know, and this is, this is not to say that Mike makes right. You know, I'm not a Schmittian. You know, I don't think, I don't think that it follows from this, that a social order in which pure power is the only justifier of um, who gets who of who decides, but a, but a, but you know just to just to flip that on its head for a moment, I think you know a, a, a political order in which pure power is the only thing which decides what d- what does or doesn't go is kind of what we have at the moment in and that's that's kind of what we're ending up with through the pursuit of egalitarianism so you know perhaps i'm being a little bit perverse but i do wonder whether you know if we just made a little bit more space for you know, mutually mm-hmm. respectful and mutually inter- interdependent hierarchies in yes. the way we organize our lives we mightn't actually end up with a more a moreistic and more more egalitarian in the sense of you know mutually respectful way of ordering things i don't know but it's it's i, I do wonder
0: Yeah, there's uh, a—on one level, you brought up the relationship between you and your daughter, and then that leads me to a proper—probably a misconception. There's um, this—in the trad realm, there's a Christian, you know, banding about some Christian sayings about the— the husband leads or the, the wife is subservient to the husband and it imposes a hierarchical relationship between the husband and the wife. Um, and there's a proper way to do that and there's an improper way to do that. There's The improper way would be to say that women belong in the kitchen, which is not what you're saying. Um, or th- that's going too far, but there is this... Uh, if we can evaluate the personality in every given relationship between who's better suited to what and the and still, I guess, maintain the value of, let's just say, domestic labor or rearing the child and, and make an honorable space to how important that is and beyond just being paid or unpaid. Um, I'm trying to fish around for how you... Establish ethical hierarchies, or how do you define that in such a way where it allows for people to be independent and uh, you know uh, forestalls corruption that is inherent in every hierarchy? But there's going to be corruption whether you like it or not in every given. I think
1: I'm I'm enough enough of a um, pessimist to think that you know the the fallen nature of man, etc. You know, there's always going to be a measure of corruption you know (laughs) yeah there's always there's always you know you can have you can devise the most perfect system in the world and people have spent people's people spent got up some pretty hideous stuff in the 20th century trying to devise perfect systems um which which would forestall possibilities of corruption and and it it, somehow the corruption always creeps back in so i'm I'm, i suppose i'm fairly i'm 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 fairly accepting you know i've you, you can't avoid a measure of that you can't avoid a measure of that you know that, and that's not to say that it should be just welcomed or shrugged off or ignored yes. um, but at least if you're if you're coming from a place that says you know this is this is a this is a heuristic rather than a set of in in inviolable rules you know yeah. then we we have a better chance of of applying applying these understandings in a flexible way which are which is appropriate to the context. Rather than just, you know, as a set of precepts handed down from on high, which are applied without regard to the individual human. Yeah. And uh, I suppose that's, I don't know that you can do any better than that, really.
0: Yeah. So realistic, Mary Harrington. <laughs> so grounded in reality.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. So, so lost in internet rabbit holes most of the time, to be completely honest.
0: I absolutely adore your writing. And your mind, and I have to. I have to get going. Um, I hope I can have you on again because it feels like we just kind of touched on a bunch of things that I would like to explore. Yeah, we started
1: about you. ten conversations. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Yeah, thing.
0: if you don't mind, if you enjoyed this yeah, yeah. enough to want to. Yeah, do that's right. Do you have any? um, uh, What are you up to next? What's on your plate next? Um, you, you write once a week. I will link your articles. Uh, is there any other big project going on? Uh,
1: what am I what am am I up to? to? I've got. A couple of a couple of slightly more political things in the works, but but just just in the works. So there's nothing nothing really concrete to say about that. You know, possibly possibly a book project, but that that's all that's all again subject to. So subject to discussions, you know, another another 10 book projects that I want to do after that. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to write a version of the feminist feminism against progress argument at some point in the, in the next few months. I have a, I have a commission to do at least a chunk of that argument, which I'm really looking forward to because I've been wanting to do a deep dive into why conservatives have a problem with with women for a long time you know why is it why is why why do people say it's impossible to be a conservative and a feminist and you know what what genuinely is so repulsive about conservatism to women because 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 it's a thing it's real and i think a lot of a lot of those women who marched against donald trump in their pink hats in 2016 only to discover that biological sex has just been abolished by the guy who was supposed to be saving them from donald trump are really (laughs) very lost at the moment because they're like now where do we go just fuck you all. Where do we go now? Um, and so so I, I kind of, I, I want to sort of dig into that a little bit. Um, you know, there's a lot of politically homeless women out there. And, you know, why exactly is it that conservatism is so repulsive? I've, I have some ideas about that, but I'll, I'll write it rather than trying to explain. It.
0: Is it kind of a yellow brick road to the Emerald City of some form of uh, conservatism, you think? You're going to give women inroads to a more I don't know whatever you mean by conservative. No, I, want to, conservative.
1: I, I, I want to salvage. I want to salvage women's political interests from both both sides. To be
0: honest, with um, with I, what end then? Is there is there a way to encapsulate the end of your feminism? Well, the I, telos. I mean, just
1: if we uh, just being learning to live together. I feel like you know the the relations between the sexes are going down a very dark path at the moment. And again, you know, I, I have a kind of spectator position on that because I'm, I'm married and have been for some time and I'm very fortunate in that way. But, you know, a lot of my younger friends, it seems seem to be in quite a dark place in terms of, you know, the the relationships between men and women, which seem to become, it, it's like everything's becoming a, a very sort of zero-sum game, where one side has to win and the other side has to lose. And, you know, and the casualties on both sides are just mounting up in a way which makes me actually, and over the longer term, deeply concerned for um, the whole edifice of women's rights, because I, I see a reaction brewing, which will be very, 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 very bad for women. And I have a daughter, so I have skin in the game. You know, my telos, very straightforwardly, is salvaging whatever, whatever I can, of what of the positives of feminism, such that my daughter can enjoy them. Because I can see a very realistic scenario in which none of it is left by the time she's an adult.
0: But could you give a concrete example of one way in which uh, women's rights will be? Uh...
1: Well, I mean, you know, but biological sex is being rolled back even as we speak, you know, the, the, you know, sex segregated toilets, sex segregated prisons, sex segregated sports, you know, all of that was fought for um, by by a whole class of women and is now being rolled back by another class of feminists. Um, you know, it's, it's perfectly plausible that my daughter will grow up into a world where, where there is no women's sport and there are no, there are no sex segregated public toilets. You know perhaps that's no big deal I don't know but but perhaps it will be a really big deal you know we have we have to trust that everybody's going to behave themselves uh, in order for it not to be a big deal um, <laughs> you know there are, there are, there are and they of,
0: totally will because they'll be given whatever they want they totally will take what advantage
1: could possibly go wrong right like, exactly what could possibly go wrong but I, I, I have a I, I have skin in the game yeah so you know, of course, I want to salvage the best bits you know I don't really want to go back to a world where I have no legal standing in my own right and I'm basically the property of my father or my husband you know that that yes. sounds pretty shit to me <laughs> you know, I quite like being a person um but um I, I think there are you know fixating on progress and fixating on you know always always moving things forward and always there always being more to win is is increasingly sort of moving the whole the whole movement in a direction which which benefits only a very small minority of women, you know the the, the ones who are really rich and can and can enjoy all the freedom, and they're leaning on all the other women.
0: You, you wrote know, that the, article about Clintonian Clinton, feminism. Clinton feminists, yeah, Clinton feminism. Brilliant article. I'm going to link that one first. That was that was what I wanted to originally speak to you about because you you said basically that the feminism that's active right now is. Dispossessing, just like so many of these political movements that are for the minorities from the left right now, or actually you know like defund the police. Who's being screwed over by that? Minority communities who are poor. Yeah, it, it sounds uh, it films. sounds
1: like it sounds like progress, but actually what it is is class war. Yeah. You
0: know, it, on so as, many fronts.
1: Yeah. It's, it's class war. I mean, defunding the police screws over people who live in in poorer communities who can't afford private security. Um, Clinton feminism, you know, is, it's great if you're rich enough to be able to subcontract all of your domestic work, but it's shit for the women who you pay to do all of your domestic work and then go home to do their own yeah. um, or, or employ undocumented workers to do it for them who then have to go home, mm-hmm. who, who then leave their children in another country being looked after by their grandmothers. Right? You, you, the, the whole thing is a Ponzi scheme.
0: <laughs> it's a pyramid.
1: Yeah, it's a pyramid it's scheme. Yeah, exactly. It's a the, the whole thing is a pyramid scheme, and it's and it's great if you're at the top of it, but yeah. uh, but you know, and, and sure, sure, subcontract all of your stuff, but you know, do you know, so call it what it is, call it call it outsourcing, you know, don't don't say what 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 you're doing is a moral movement for the advancement of half of the half of the human population because that's not what it is. Yeah,
0: Mary Harrington, you're awesome. <laughs> I want to have you back <laughs> on. I have to go. Um, I will provide all the links to your material and uh, hopefully people get turned on to your rabid mind. I don't know if (laughs) rabid is the right word, but uh, that's the first one that came to me. (laughs)
2: It's
1: been fun, Benjamin. Thank you for having me. It's been great. All right,
0: you have a good night.
1: I this a lot. And you, take care. All
0: right, ciao. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.